Praise the Lord. If you come here this morning, you're bored. Man, I don't know. Check your pulse, breathe on a mirror or something. Praise the Lord. Wow, that is awesome. Praise God. Well, there's good stuff happening in every generation in this house. Amen. So don't miss out on it. Tap into what God wants to do. Don't, don't go through life just taking it as it comes to you. Step into God's provision for you. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin, you begin to dictate to your circumstances in Jesus Christ. You begin to speak to those mountains and tell them to move. Are you hearing me this morning? And, uh, you know, so many times, you know one of the words that I don't like at all? Thank you, Mark knows me so well. Serendipity, I don't like that word. The word means, you know, uh, uh, a benevolent or a good thing happening by, you know, circumstance or by happenstance. I believe that most of the good things that happen to your life come because of your devotion to the Lord, you're walking by those decisions and living according to values and principles in your life. It aligns you so that good things can be poured into your life. The best things in my life had nothing to do with serendipity. They had to do with Sherry and I determining to walk according to the word of God. And then God is able to pour blessing upon those who walk uprightly. I don't earn his grace by walking uprightly, but I do, I do position myself for blessing by walking uprightly. I'm able to walk uprightly because God paid the price for me through his son, Jesus Christ. But if I walk according to his word, there is no limit to what I can accomplish in this life. Are you hearing me this morning? And that's the God we serve. And so strike the word serendipity out of your vocabulary. Get rid of it. I know, I... I still can't believe they made a serendipity Bible. I'm like, really? Really? Uh, you know, it, it just seems to grate me. But anyway, <laughs> enough about that pastor's pet peeve. And you might love the word serendipity and say, pastor, I just can't believe you don't like that word. You just hold on to that then. You just walk with that and, and leave me alone. I'm just going to hang on to my little axe and grind it real hard here. Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. Well, last week... Um, I spoke about our need to encounter God as Father and how Mark uh, in January did a great job talking about how we first encounter God, and this is probably true of almost everybody's experience, we first encounter Him as Jesus Christ because we become aware of our need of a Savior. And then after we encounter Jesus, then we uh, often we just have, we have an encounter with Holy Spirit and we realize we need His power in order to be able to live and walk uprightly in this life. But for many of us, we... we we don't encounter God as Father until much later in our journey. And, and, uh, and I talked about how, you know, it's difficult because encountering God as Father means to, you know, encounter God in a position of humility as a son or as a daughter. To encounter Him who knows me so intimately that He knows everything about me. It stirs up all those uncomfortable feelings that we get uh, about intimacy. And so, oftentimes, we never really embrace God as father. But it's embracing God as father that helps us deal with the four great needs that we have in our life. And I talked about those, introduced those last week, that everybody needs to, you know, uh, be loved. They need to know love. They need to know their identity. They need to know purpose and they need hope. That everybody needs love, identity, purpose, and hope. And I, and I spoke about love last week, and I'm not going to take too much time to, to go over any of that. But we need to receive those four things from God. Love. Everybody say love. love. Identity. Identity. 
purpose, and hope. Love, identity, purpose, and hope. Now, next week, uh, Pastor Mark's going to talk about purpose, and he's pretty excited about it. He, he was like, I, I love where you're going. Can I actually talk about purpose? And I'm like, yes, you can talk about purpose. And uh, he said it works so well. He said, because I, I don't know that I've ever really preached on hope before, so I'm going to leave that with you, but I get to talk about purpose, and he's excited about it, and uh, I'm excited to hear what he's going to say about it, but uh, we need those things operating in our life. Amen. And if you look at every challenge, every need that you have in your life, it can probably be reduced to one of those four things. Either it's an area where you lack love, or it's an area where you don't have an, an you're having an identity crisis, where you don't know what your purpose is, or that you've lost hope. And those things are found in our relationship with Him as our Father and us as a son or daughter. God the Father, the Bible says, knit me together in the womb. He knew me before I was born. He created me to be me. He calls me by name. He has adopted me into his divine family. So any struggle that I have in this life with identity is because I don't yet know him as Father. Are you hearing me? It's because I don't yet know him as Father. So let's just pray this morning as we look to the Scripture. Father, we ask for your help. That in the next 25 minutes, we're going to be able to uh, journey through the scripture to see you as Father, God the Father, God my Father. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would help me today as I communicate the truth of your scripture to hearts gathered here. That, Lord, everything that you say in your word, everything that you've taught us to be true, that, Lord, we would understand it to be true and how it applies to me into my life. And Father, I ask it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first thing, if we're going to understand this this morning, we've got to know is that God is the Father. Amen? Now, here's an interesting thing. I went through the Old Testament and looked up the word Father. I did one of those searches. The word Father is like 800 and sometimes in the Old Testament. But it's, it's like less than 25 times in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, is it a reference to God, right? It's like the fa- Abraham, the father of Jacob. You know, the word father is used in the, in the human sense of paternity, but it's rarely used as a descriptor for God in the Old Covenant. I found that very interesting. And uh, so as I was going through the scripture, the first time, in fact, God is even referred to as father isn't in, until you get all the way into Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, it says, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Now, this was, here this is Moses preparing the people of Israel for his soon demise. He knows he's being called home to be with the Lord, and he's prepping them to, for their journey into the promised land and handing the mantle over to Joshua. And, and you know, Moses has had a long history with Israel. And he's very familiar with their propensity to abandon God and turn to other things, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you look at his journey with them through the wilderness and all the rest of it, he must have had days when he was pulling his hair out. 
That's why when I see pictures of Moses with long hair, I say, no, I think he looks more like Mark because he probably pulled it all out uh, dealing with those stubborn and stiff-necked people. I mean, the poor guy, the things that he had to put up with and the crumbling and the complaining, even after they'd seen the Red Sea part, they no sooner get across into the land uh, of promise and all of a sudden they're grumbling and complaining again. How many have read the, the story? So here's Moses, he's, he's ready for his departure and he... He knows, he's reminding them of how God delivered them from bondage under Pharaoh, and he actually reminds them that it was God the Father that took them out of that place. And that's the first time in Scripture. And so Moses is really the first person that, I think, had a revelation of God as Father. Not as some distant, powerful, omniscient being who created everything, but as a father. Moses is the first person that records that. Then, if you fast forward, the next time he's referred to his father is in a word from the Lord to David through Nathan the prophet. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And, and God is speaking to Nathan, and he's telling Nathan, this is what I want you to say to David. And so God says, I will be his father, David's father, and he shall be my son. If he commits any iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of sons of men. So in other words, I'm going to discipline him because I love him. But he's telling him, I'm going to do it because I'm his father. And so Nathan's got to go and deliver this word to David and tell him that God is, says he's your father and you're his son. And that he's got, if he disciplines you, it's because you're a son. I think that's incredible. So the second time God reveals himself as father is there. What a thing to hear, I think, from the Lord, that God personally says, I'm going to be your father and you're going to be my son. That's pretty cool. Later, David had it in his heart to build the tabernacle of the Lord, but you guys know the story. God said, no, too much bloodshed in your hands, but your son, he's going to get to build the tabernacle of the Lord. But David didn't allow any bitterness to set into his heart. Even though he knew he wasn't going to be the one to build it, he still took up an offering for it, right? And so in the Bible, we read about this incredible offering that David took up to build the temple of the Lord, and there was so much money came in that people literally brought everything and just threw it at uh, the feet of David, and he raised up so much money that they were able to build the temple debt-free. Everybody say debt-free. They were able to do it debt-free. And so they built the temple of the Lord, and so David, who understood God as Father, this is what he declares after he receives this incredible offering. He says, and he shall build a house for my name, speaking with Solomon, and he shall be my son, and he will be, and God will be his father, and I will establish the throne of the kingdom over him forever. So he passed that understanding on to his own son. And uh, then we read later for this in Scripture, David declared God as father in, the, in 1 Chronicles 29, 10. It says, therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father forever." And ever. So now David's taking that revelation and he's applying it to all of Israel. He's our father forever and ever. And then you go forward a little further, Psalm 68, verse 5, he talks about God this way. He says, He's a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. That's how he defines God. And then later in the Psalms, Ethan the Ezraite. How many have ever heard of Ethan the Ezraite? I know I hadn't. Uh, he's only mentioned twice in Scripture, once here. And once when they're comparing the wisdom of Solomon, they say he was even wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. If you get a mention 
in combination like that, you're probably a pretty wise guy. If, uh, if they say that about you, that Solomon was wiser, and they named like three people that he was wiser than, and one of them was Ezra. And Ezra only wrote one psalm at Psalm 89, and in that psalm, he said, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Ezra got the revelation as well, or Ethan got that revelation as well. He got it that God was his father. Praise the Lord. Now, who was this guy? Well, most scholars believe that he was, he was one of the young men that served in the temple uh, with David, that he was one of the temple courtiers who worked there and served there and grew up to be one of the leaders of worship and of serving in the temple of the Lord uh, with David or in the house of the Lord, I should say, with David. So anyway, there we go. Then if you move forward a little further, uh, you see the, the prophets. Isaiah identifies God as father three times, but probably no passage more famous than uh, in chapter 9 when he calls, you know, God, you know, uh, Father, right? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? In that great messianic prophecy, you guys know that one. And then as you go far, a little further, Jeremiah also uh, calls God Father three times. And then finally, one more reference, and this is it. I'm, I'm, these are all the references in the Old Testament to God as Father. Then we see Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, uh, rounding out the Old Testament, Malachi said this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we treacher- deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Do we not all have one Father? The prophet said. Now that's how few times God is referred to as Father under the Old Covenant. I found that kind of interesting. I, I, I love doing word searches in the scripture, and it's so easy now with a computer. I used to have to get this book called Strong's Concordance out. Do you guys remember those? <laughs> you guys don't, Lloyd and Ann know. I mean, how much work did you do by a Strong's Concordance? Hours laboring over that thing, pages and pages of scriptures, and they're all uh, strong. It took Strong over 30 years to compile that. Did you know that? over 30 years, and you can do the same thing now. Uh, they compiled the uh, last concordance, the NIV one, back over 20 years ago with a computer in less than a month. But it took Strong's concordance, uh, it took them over 30 years to develop that book. And now we can sit there on a Bible software program and go, bing, oh, wow. You know, God is called Father how many times in the Old Testament? You know, you can look it all up. Incredible. But it also gives you the ability to go, what? Right? And this was one of those moments where I went, what? So few times. And it made me realize that the revelation of Father and the ability for us to know him as Father was so limited because Jesus Christ had not yet come. That it shows us, it only affirms for us the role that Jesus coming and giving his life for us uh, takes in establishing God as Father. Are you hearing me this morning? If you fast forward that into the New Testament, to the New Covenant, we see God as Jesus' Father. This is interesting. Uh, We don't have time to read all the verses that affirm this today, but let me just give you a few. Matthew 7, 21, it says, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus clearly saw God as his father. And there's lots of references to this in the scripture. Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father in heaven. Before my father in heaven. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have 
hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, uh, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father and no one who knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. I mean, do you see how he's reiterating his relationship with God as Father? And, uh, you know, also, like all of the Gospels record Jesus on the cross, for it, if it is your will, Father, take this cup from me. Father, forgive them, for they, I, they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Over and over again, Jesus, when he spoke of God, addressed him as Father. And of course, the book of John is pilfered with Jesus. There's no more references to some Jesus calling God Father than there is in the Gospel of John. It is littered with them. It's all through there. You cannot miss it. And uh, it's over and over and over and over and over again. 34 times in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus says, my Father. 34 times. Do you think maybe, maybe John was on to something? That he had a little bit of understanding? After all, how did John describe himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. That wasn't arrogance. That was confidence in his identity. Hallelujah. All right. Jesus clearly related to God as a father, but here's something for you. The father also related to Jesus as the son. And I think this is profound. I want you to hear this this morning. At Jesus' baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father spoke from heaven, and this is what he said. This is my son, whom I love. In him, I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love in him. I am well pleased. That's an amazing declaration. And it hits three of the four things that I was talking about that we need. First one, he nails here his identity. This is my son. Who is Jesus? My son. And then he said, whom I love, love, right? And with him, I'm well pleased. In other words, the things that he's done, living out his purpose, I'm pleased with it. He's living out his purpose. I'm pleased. Three of the four nailed in one statement from God. And he spoke that to Jesus. And it had a profound impact on Jesus and on the disciples. In first, uh, Second Peter, I should say, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, listen to what Peter said. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Peter noted that honor and glory was given to Jesus by the Father. That's powerful. Now, here's the real point this morning. God declared, this is my son whom I love. In him, I'm well pleased. This is my son. This is who he is. And I love him. And I'm pleased with him and what he's doing and how he's working. If, if Jesus, if God the Father knew that Jesus needed that affirmation to complete his earthly journey, how much more do you and I need that affirmation from God as well? And how much more do we need to live in that affirmation from him? Are you hearing me this morning? Jesus was secure in the love of the Father and because God spoke it and affirmed it over him. And so he walked in that security. He operated in that security. His identity was secure and he received love from God and so his purpose was able to be fulfilled. And his purpose, I got to tell you, it doesn't matter what God's called you to, none of your assignments are as tough as Jesus. 
How many know his assignment was the toughest? Right? That no cross that you bear will be as difficult as the one that Jesus bore on your behalf. His journey was the most difficult journey. And so God spoke over him and over his, his affection for him and his, his uh, identity and over his purpose. He spoke that over him. And Jesus was able to live out his assignment. And what was that assignment? Jesus gave his life on the cross. Why? Why did Jesus give his life on the cross? So that he could restore us to the Father. You know, there's a lot of crazy things that get taught about Jesus' death on the cross. There is. That he did it as a good example. Really? Dying on the cross is a good example? Example of what? If he wasn't actually accomplishing something, if he wasn't actually paying a price for something, if he was just a dude saying, I'm going I'm to show these people what sacrifice is all about, I'm going to go die on a cross. That doesn't make any sense at all. That puts him in the, somewhere close to the loony bin. You know what I mean? Super masochist. But he wasn't some kind of crazy masochist. He was the son of God whose purpose, whose assignment was to give his life, paying the price for the sin that existed in our life so that that could be removed. The Bible calls it the enmity between man and God was removed by Jesus Christ so that we could have relationship with the Father again. So that that which was destroyed in the garden is restored through Jesus Christ. That's why he gave his life on the cross. So the Bible doesn't just affirm Jesus' identity as a son, though. It affirms yours and mine as well. That when Jesus paid the price on the cross, he did so to establish our identity as sons and daughters of God. Well, he died to pay for the sins of the world. Yes. But why? So that he could restore us to the Father. The gospel isn't just about the penalty for sin. It's about asking why. How many know when you ask why, you finally, enough times you finally get to the answer to the problem? And the why about the cross is so that he could restore you and I to the Father. That was the whole point. Through Jesus, we have been made family with God again. We have been grafted back into the family of God. Did you know that 33 times in the New Testament, we see the phrase either God our Father or our God and Father. 33 times we see that phrase in the scripture being applied not to Jesus, but to you and I because of what Jesus has accomplished. The message of the new covenant, in stark contrast to the old covenant, is that God is our Father. And that has been restored because of Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with the Father. We've been made part of the family. And this is so significant. That's who we are. That's our identity. We are a son or a daughter of God. Listen to how Paul explains this process of our adoption through Jesus Christ. And he, and he tackles it in three different letters. And he talks about this at length. But I'm only going to pull out three quick passages this morning. And I want you to listen carefully to the words that Paul uses. First, we're going to turn to my favorite book in the Bible, Ephesians. Right, Barry? Ephesians chapter 1. 
And Barry and I were discussing this morning how you could preach 100 sermons out of Ephesians chapter 1 alone. But Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse five, uh, verse 3, I should say, and listen to, what, listen to how Paul described our relationship to Jesus and to God. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Whoa, man, isn't that an incredible passage of Scripture? We've been adopted through Jesus Christ, and we are now in the family of God. It's amazing that you would just, if you could get hold of that and get it in your spirit, stop living as an orphan. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. You're part of a divine family. doesn't matter how crappy your earthly family might have been or how great your earthly family might have been. You've been adopted into an even better family. It's the family of God, the divine family. That is who you are. You are first a son or daughter of God before you are anything else. That is your identity. But it gets even better. Galatians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says here. Galatians 4, verse 6 and 7. My goodness, this is just, if you don't like this stuff, then slap yourself. Would you just take the hand and just poof right across the old face? Because you got to wake up or do something. Because I'm telling you, it's, it's good stuff. Listen to this. And because you are sons. So Paul's picking off up from where he just left off in Ephesians. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You are no longer an orphan, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Wow. Not just a son, but an heir. An heir. Everybody say heir. An heir is an incredible thing. If you're an heir, that means that you have are so thoroughly into the family, even if you're adopted, that you receive an inheritance, right? You're an heir to all that the family member that passed had. That's position, that's authority, that's means, it's, 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 it's commodity, whatever they have, you now have because you are an heir. Everybody understand that? Romans chapter 8, look at this one, chapter 8, verse 14. Listen to this. Come on now. For as many are, as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs. This is incredible. Listen to this joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So that if indeed, if we suffer with them, in other words, anything you have to, any persecution you receive, he said that we may also be glorified together with him. Now you got to get this in your spirit. Not only are you an heir, you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I don't even, do you understand what that's actually saying? That you are an heir of the promises of God 
on par with your brother Jesus. That is just ridiculous stuff right there. I'm telling you, that is just incredible. If if Paul didn't say it, if I didn't read it in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. It's It's that amazing. If I didn't read it in the Word of God, I wouldn't be able to believe it. But because it's in the Word of God, if it's in the Word of God, then I believe it, and that settles it for me. Are you hearing me? And, and we need to understand the power of this term. You're a co-heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. If Jesus inherits it from the Father, you inherit it from the Father. If Jesus is seated in heavenly places, you're seated in heavenly places. If Jesus has authority over all power, dominion, and sin, you have the power over all authority over power, dominion, and sin. If Jesus says, everything I have need of, God supplies, then everything you have need of, God supplies. Do you understand the magnitude of this? That you are a co-heir with Jesus. Mm. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Man. Jesus, help us understand this. Wow. All right, well, I'm going to conclude, but my conclusion's about five minutes, so don't get excited. I've only got one, but it, but it is a full five-minute one. <laughs> the message I bring this morning, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, this is not new. I don't mean that it's not new in the Scripture. It's 2,000 years old. You know, I get that. I mean it's not new to this house. We've been talking about this for better part of a decade. If you were to go back through all the sermon series we've done, you could see a thread, and that thread is identity. Identity has been the thing that we've been going after for a long time. A long time. Why? Because it's so, so important, so absolutely essential for your life in Christ. You need, you must comprehend your identity in Christ. You say, well, how have you reinformed this? Let me just give you a few examples. Twenty and 2015, I think it was. Gabe could probably tell me better. Uh, but we rebranded, right? From Desert Stream, a place of new beginnings, to Desert Stream, belong, believe, become. And then we spent several weeks just talking about this and talking about this. And we, we harped on that first one, belong. Why? You're a son. You're a daughter. You belong to God. And when somebody comes in here, it's our first desire that you would discover that you belong. Not that you had to belong to us, per se, although that's an added bonus when you feel like Desert Stream's your family, but that you understand that you belong to God, that he is your father. And we championed that, and we championed that. And, and in fact, all of your belief system and your ability to become everything that you are, you are and can be in God is predicated by you understanding, first, I belong. I belong. So we use those words purposefully. It wasn't just accidental. And they're in the right order, by the way. You have to belong before you can truly believe and become everything that you're meant to be. Then we talked about a few years ago about uh, how, we remember we had three chairs up here on the platform, and we talked about, there was this old, old metal, I think, rickety chair was chair three, and then we had kind of a nicer chair, one of the chairs, I think, from the sanctuary chair two, and then we had this beautiful padded you know, armchair as chair one. And we talked about how all the world is stuck in chair three. They don't know, uh, their, their identity is not clear because they don't know they belong to God, right? And then we talked about how you got to move, uh, when, you, when you come to Christ, you move out of chair three and you move into chair two. 
And chair two is a place where most Christians get stuck and they stay there. But God's goal was never for you to stay in chair two. Chair two is, I know I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I believe the scripture. I, I understand that God loves me. I got that. But you're not tapping into everything God has for you. You need to move to chair one. You need to be seated with Christ in heavenly places, operating by the authority of God in chair one. And so then we talked about what life in chair one is like. That is a place where we find ourselves firmly seated around the Lord's ta- table, planning and working and orchestrating the future of the city of Belleville as sons and daughters of the king. Amen? And we've been called to extend his kingdom. We can't do it as orphans. We have to do it as sons. We can't do it from chair two. We've got to do it from chair one. So you say, okay, well, that's good. Yeah, we, we must have got it then. Well, we were a little concerned, so we kept going. Then we did a series entitled Be, Have, Do. Do you guys remember that? And how whole, the whole world works the opposite of that. The whole world is do. You got to go out and you got to do and You got to work and you got to do this and you got to do that so that you can have a whole a lot of money. You can have a whole lot of praise from men. You can have all those things so that you can be somebody. So you just want to go, now I've arrived. I'm somebody. Do, have, be. But the kingdom flips it right on its head. And it says, be a son of God. Then, just because you are a son or a daughter of God, you can have everything that you need in order to do everything God's called you to do. Be, have, do. We reinforced it there again. But we weren't done yet. Then at another time, we did a whole series based on three questions. Everybody needs to know the answer to three questions. First question, everybody needs the answer to. Whose you are. Second one, who you are. Third one, and to who am I aligned or who am I doing life with? Right? Those are the three questions. Whose, who, and to whom? And we, we, we camped on that. We talked about, you know, how you need to know whose you are. That's the identity question. When people are ask, asking the question of identity, they're always talking in this world about who I am. And it's the wrong place to look. If you're looking for your identity from who you are, you're always going to be lost. When we look at identity and who I am, then we're in trouble. Because we look at identity, it says I'm a teacher, a mother, a father, a policeman, etc. Or I might be a, a black, white, Filipino, American, Canadian. Or I might say I'm a Republican or a Democrat, a conservative or a liberal. Or I might say I'm a millennial or a baby boomer. Or I'm tall or I'm short, I'm bright, I'm simple. And on and on and on and on and on the list goes. All of the things that we try to find identity in that have nothing to do with identity. Now, that's not that they're not important. They are, they're, but they're about purpose. They're not about identity. Our identity has one source and one source alone. It's the answer to the question, whose am I? I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. That is my identity. It's rooted in whose I am. I belong to him. Are you seeing a theme here? Is it, is it coalescing for you? Now, the answer to who you are, to your purpose, is important. And Mark's going to talk about that next week. And, but you can't get there if you don't know whose you are first. If you don't know that you belong to God, then all of these other things that you're striving for and you're working for, and, and people say, what am I here for? That's a purpose question. The who question, that's, a, that's an identity question. But when we say, what am I here for? What's my purpose? How do, I, how do I serve God? How do I fill a niche for God? Those are important questions. And Mark will help you with the answer to those. 
But you've got to know whose you are first before you can know who you are. I know who I am. I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a board member on 